0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is An- Andrew Ventimiglia, postdoctoral research fellow at the T.C. Byrne School of Law, University of uh, Queenland, Australia. We will discuss his new book, Copywriting God, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the program, Andrew. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me on. So I really... Love this book because you included some of my very, very favorite copyright disputes and copyright cases, Uh many of which actually found their way into my own open source copyright casebook, which will be coming out really soon. So, I mean, I know why I'm so fascinated by this material, but I want to know (laughs) about you. Like, how did you get interested in Uh these kind of crossover copyright and religion cases? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, So... Um, my own background is is not in law. Um, it was mainly media studies, and I came from the uh, program in culture and media at NYU in cinema studies, and you know, kind of started from content analysis, but really became interested in the mechanisms of media distribution. And that sounds uh, super boring, <laughs> but I found that uh, control over the circulation of particular media forms. Uh, legally or otherwise, all different kind of mechanisms of control, uh, were incredibly important in using media or having media kind of be this kind of social, have a particular kind of social function. And so religious organizations were an exemplary uh, place to look at where the control of religious media had really profound effects on social, on the particular kind of configuration of followers in uh, Religious movements, particularly new religious movements, so in my background, I did work on um, kind of looking at the emergence of new religious movements around new books. So I looked at a group called the New York Soul Dreamers, uh, a, a group of dream activists and explorers in New York, and actually did a short documentary on them uh, to see like how they developed new practices, how they developed new texts. Um, And I also worked in publicity, film publicity, where we had strategic distribution of religious films, um, where we got them into, uh, this was after The Passion of the Christ. So, you know, how we marketed films and got them into communities that would circulate them in particular ways. So I've always been interested in this, this kind of social life of media, the distributive life of media. And that led me to copyright um, and the incredible importance that. Uh, proprietary ownership that copyright ownership uh, can have uh, in the social life of media forms, in the social life of texts, films, music, um, and particularly with religion, um, how, how this configuration, this kind of uh, attention to media distribution uh, could be incredibly important for particular religious movements. Um, you know, from the obvious examples like Scientology to uh, much more esoteric, no pun intended, but esoteric groups like uh, the Arantia Foundation and, and others. So.
0: Right. Well, so there's, there's obviously been a long, very long history of sort of intersection between copyright and religion. I mean, arguably, you could say that, you know, copyright in England was almost created for the protection and encouragement of certain kinds of religious texts. But it, it it seems like the kind of use and conceptualization of copyright that you're talking about today is something very, very different. And I was wondering mm. if you could mm. say a little something about that transition from the sort of – the kind of more conventional history of the relationship between copyright and religion And when maybe it started to become something that was different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the question is, is, um, the, uh, the question is basically trying to unpack what is the relationship between religion and copyright, um, in a way that attends to the rich history of these interrelations, but also uh, recognizes uh, innovative use, right uh, mm-hmm. kind of innovative strategies for these new, new organizations. So um, so one of the ways I thought about it was uh, it's, it's a line from Karen Err that talked about you know the, the kind of discourses of property, can be historically subsumed within legal regimes. And it only takes particular circumstances to to bring them out, to bring them to the front. So I do think that the rich history of religion and copyright in terms of um, the, you know, the way that printing privileges were used to uh, censor or limit the circulation of heterodox texts, is relevant in the context of these new religious movements but not in terms of a a clear trajectory between those moments where where ownership was used for religious control to these contemporary moments. But I think there's something to be said about that logic, that logic of proprietary control continuing to exist within intellectual property regimes if it isn't, even if it isn't the kind of the focus of the law. But um, they also were very kind of forward-looking In terms of understanding the diversity of tools available to them uh, within contemporary copyright law. So, for instance, um, I can talk about different examples uh, later, but the Arantia Foundation, they didn't just they claimed copyright, but then they developed a particularly kind of sophisticated and nuanced um, licensing regime, right, which is very forward-looking. So they not didn't just copyright the text, but they produced um, licenses based on the text with various reader groups. Um, they were very attentive to the circulation of derivative works and what it meant for there to be a derivative work based on their particular angelically authored text of the Urantia book as a kind of foundation. And um, they even were aware in really interesting ways of the, um, the kind of constructedness of the author the author concept. So they were totally happy to say, we're going to use copyright. We're going to, we're going to call the author this, the Arantia Foundation or whatever, full well knowing that the true author of these texts is either divine or angels or much more complicated than just human authorship. And they say, that's fine. It was a very pragmatic approach to the law to say that, we can maneuver within this kind of legal discourse with these legal tools for explicitly religious ends. Um, and there's a kind of savvy there, uh, interplay between religious argument and secular legal argument, um, a kind of uh, tactical nuance to what they were doing that to me felt very innovative and very forward looking. Um, so,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is, I mean, for me, this was a really deep insight in one of many really deep insights in the book which is that you know we have this kind of conventional understanding of of copyright doctrine kind of framed in very like either kind of economic utilitarian or mm. proprietarian terms where there's sort of a, an assumption uh, that people are going to be using copyright in a particular way. And in many respects, kind of on its face, it looks almost orthogonal to the purposes of a religious organization. And yet you, you, you really point out about how these organizations have taken the doctrine and recast it to fit their own needs rather than the needs for which it was designed. It seems. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's putting it very,
1: very well and very generously. Um, but yeah, that's exactly right. So what? Um, so when I started with the project, I think I was uh, I was most interested in um, this really relatively obvious conflict between theological argument and legal argument over the authorship of a text. Right? How can you claim div- something is divinely authored in a text without losing the rights? Um, so I, I I started with the assumption that these would be very oppositional. And to a certain extent, that's true. Um, we would sometimes call it when I was editing the book um, and uh, someone here, Brad Sherman, an intellectual property historian, was kind of helping me shape it. We'd always call it more God, less law or less God, more law, right? There's this kind of pendulum in which if you relied too much on legal argument or religious argument, you lost that balance of control that they were going for. But what what I found in doing the research was not was that there was much more nuance to this kind of simple secular religious opposition. And um, so I think I, I, I've often thought about it as in kind of three layers. So one being they discover these incredible moments of harmony, right? these these moments where religious and legal argument harmonize. Um, And I would say those are the moments that I said before are like pulling up historically subsumed arguments, using copyright for censorship or control. Uh, then there are moments of dissonance where they have to subtly translate a kind of religious logic into a legal logic. So that would be, for instance, um, maybe turning a claim for divine authorship of a text into divine inspiration, which is perfectly you know, legitimate within the frame of copyright. Um, and then there are also the moments where these things are totally incommensurate. So, you know, you'll have these these issues between well, you know, uh, control and free distribution of the text if there's a particular evangelical tradition that's using copyright. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, this is all just to say that um, that as religious organizations move to the space of copyright, um, they recognize something that I think, you know, non-legal historians sometimes might overlook, which is to say, um copyright is not a stable or sedimented thing it's a it's got layers of doctrine it's got layers of history and uh these religious organizations kind of explored it and tested and pushed you know pushed in different ways and um in ways that uh, i think were really creative uh legally creative and kind of theologically creative which is not to say that I mean, one of the things that I don't really address is that the use of copyright for many of these organizations uh, eventually led to their doom. you know, eventually led to the decline of followers. And um, mm. so I think you could make a broader claim that this strategy always failed. Nonetheless, when you look at the particular cases or the, the, the conversations going on about how we should use copyright, there's a level of subtlety there and a level of, of thoughtfulness that I found really engaging. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the heart of the book in a lot of ways is really the examples because that's where the observations really rise from. And, and so I was hoping we could spend some time sort of talking about the particular religious organizations that you profile in, in the book. And in particular, like, I'd love to talk to start with the Urantia Foundation because, I mean, it's just such a fascinating organization. And I love the way that you sort of show how they relatively effectively, at least for a period of time, used copyright as a way of enforcing kind of orthodoxy and the sort of approach to evangelizing for the organization.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Needless to say, I, you know the the Urantia Foundation has uh, so the Urantia book. And the cases that emerge from that are one of those that have kind of that popped up um, on the radar in other legal scholarship. Um, and there's a series of cases that are just totally fascinating and have had a really interesting legacy because a lot of what that was about was the nature of authorship, right? A lot of what they were they were working through is who is the author of this text, legally speaking and theologically speaking. So there's been an interesting afterlife for the Urantia cases as scholarship around non-human, um, uh, non-human authorship has kind of picked up steam. So when I first started writing the Urantia material, it was before the monkey selfie case and, mm. you know, kind of in the middle of emerging scholarship on computer generated works. Um, but anyway, so I think that it has a lot of resonance in, in a few different areas yeah. of law.
0: Yeah. So I was wondering, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with the yeah. Urantia Foundation or the Urantia book, maybe you could give like a kind of a potted version uh-huh. of Urantian theology, because I think that would really help people understand the sort of tension with copyright um, and how they sort of mobilized their intervention with copyright.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the Urantia book is um, is, a, is a sacred work for, for those that follow it. Um, It's an enormous book, uh, about, you know, 2100 pages or so. And it was, it's, it's, it's history of production is incredibly complicated. Um, so, but in short form, um, there was a psychologist who found a, who started working with a patient who, when the, when the patient was sleeping, they call him the sleeping subject. Um, the patient started to deliver papers, um, individual chapters, um, of, uh, that were angelically authored about the nature of the universe, kind of the structure and nature of the universe, um, theological dimensions of, of our, uh, uh retellings of the life of Jesus, um, you know, all the kind of material of a rich sacred text. Um, uh, and the psychologist found that, uh, the sleeping subject would also respond to questions. So this the psychologist assembled a group of interesting interested people, uh, later called the Contact Commission, that would ask questions of the sleeping subject, and papers would be delivered, kind of responding or nuancing uh, uh, in different ways this doctrine. And the end result was this book that um, was... Partially channeled, partially the response of these questions delivered by the commission, um, and that gave a kind of comprehensive view of the world um, uh, in a way that the psychologist and the followers thought was prophetic, was uh, a step above you know other sacred texts, and that needed to be circulated in particular ways. So um, copyright was, and, and very early on in this history. Um, uh, the Urantia Foundation, which was designed to own the copyright in the text and the printing plates, they very early on recognized the importance of copyright in this text for maintaining control over its circulation. So in, a, in an early document, you know, one of the guys says, copyright is simply necessary in order to control the rate and means of dissemination of the Urantia book. And the idea was, for, these, for the Urantia Foundation, the idea was that Um, if the book was circulated too quickly um, and if it was not, if it was circulated in uh, bits and pieces, right? If you like extracted pamphlets or or parts of it, it would damage the integrity of the, of the message. Um, And if it was circulated too quickly, it would, it would kind of damage the the power of the prophecy. So what they wanted to do was the Arantia foundation wanted to ensure that uh, the sale of each book was from a trusted reader who believed in the text. Often that meant, you know, circulating the book from hand to hand rather than putting it in stores, not advertising it necessarily. Um, Essentially, a really managed rollout strategy for a prophecy. Um, and, And they recognized that copyright was essential in doing so. But very quickly, they rubbed up against other believers who had other ideas of how best to serve the mission uh, of the text. And that was you know, to get it out as widely as possible, right? To disseminate it, to send the message in, in all different forms, um, to advertise, to uh, construct a book cover, a packaging design in ways that would be enticing to new readers. And so very early on, you had this intense uh, tension between different believers of the text about how the text should, should best circulate in order to Kind of serve the angelic uh, message that they wanted to get out. And um, this is what ended up pushing different uh, actors in this situation into the, the courtroom. In other words, the, the the court cases that emerged were not between believers and non believers, right? They were between different Urantians, all of whom were interested in circulating this book in particular ways. They just had very different ideas for how to do so.
0: Yeah. And, and that was what was so fascinating about it was sort of the internal tension between the arguments that were made by the Urantia Foundation in order to kind of achieve its copyright goals while not undermining the theological legitimacy mm-hmm. of the claims that they were making. Because it seemed like, you know, there was always, they were always running this risk of effectively disavowing parts of the theological story that they were telling.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the first part of that story is the authoring of the book and the strategies of distribution. The second part is when, when the series of court cases kind of emerge, how they turn that initial argument, that initial argument about control and, you know, um, careful str- strategic distribution into something that can be kind of defended legally. So one of the quotes that I, that I mentioned that I think I, I found early on and became a linchpin quote was from um, one of the early litigants who uh, Kristen Mahara, who started distributing a copy, a version of the Arantio book on CD um, in ways that were not uh, per- permitted. And she wrote by suing me, so uh, um, yeah, by suing me, the foundation has swallowed a poison pill. If they admit the superhuman authorship of the papers in court, they lose the copyright. If they say they hired a human to write the papers, they lose their credibility with the readers, not to mention the ancients of days. So that's the more God less law thing, right? How much? Mm-hmm. How much can the foundation rely on legal argument without diminishing the religious claims? And their solution, um, one one of their solutions. Is so cool, which is, which is that they built the argument that that then was picked up on by well, not picked up on, but that was also being articulated by critical legal scholars um, that the author construct was just that it was a legal fiction that they could deploy, <laughs> well knowing that their theological claims about divine authorship weren't going to be undermined. So mm-hmm. they're very explicit in their newsletters about saying, look, you know, copyright was is a human construct. Um, you know, we full well recognize that these, but these works were not authored by the conduit or by the foundation. We're simply doing it to control the means of uh, distribution for this text. Um, so that's where that kind of pragmatism comes on. That's very, uh, that's that to me seemed very clever and very, very nuanced. Uh, and w- Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, and one of the things that's so odd about it is to sort of see the courts try to rationalize these Uh theological arguments and put them in doctrinal terms, and especially when it comes to the Urantia Book. I mean, the the end game in a way was this almost this funny kind of like splitting the baby type (laughs) Uh thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, when the when the
1: one of the cases finally moves on to, uh, to, um, to trial. And, um, one of the things that they ask the jurors to consider is, are all these questions that are coming up, is the work a compilation? Um, is it a a work of joint authorship? Um, and they ask the jurors to, to, uh, uh, essentially to decide on this level of, of, of doctrinal detail that, of course, um, to the Urantia Foundation is, is totally irrelevant. They're happy with whatever whatever determination there is, so long as it, it ensures their rights. So the, the theological claims become, you know, kind of parceled out into different legal categories, right? So is Angelica, is the conduit the employee of the angels, right? Like, it, 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 can we conceive of <laughs> it that way? It's, you know, yeah. was the sale of the printing plates, does, is that sufficient to demonstrate that copyright was transferred from the divine to the human foundation, mm-hmm. right? So they're looking for these moments where they can anchor theological claims to uh, legal specifics. And – um yeah. And that's, and that's actually work being, you know, the foundation sets the framework for that, but it is the, it is the opinions the the judges that are trying, that are kind of doing this because they want to reconcile it in, in some way, right? They don't, they don't want to leave something uncopyrighted.
0: Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that really is the element that from the kind of doctrinal standpoint, the court seems really uncomfortable with the idea that, and a work of authorship could come into being without an author. And the Oranta Foundation, in a way, is sort of taking advantage of that, that doctrinal discomfort to sort of let the court kind of figure out whatever sort of way it can to, you know, pretend that that the authorship can like just sort of land somewhere. And like you say, they don't really seem to care where it lands yeah. so long as the court says that they can get what they want. That's ex- yeah, that's
1: exactly right. And that, and I mean, I, um, I mean, I don't really address it in the book, but I, like I see that all over the place in the emerging discussions about computer generated works. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. like people need authorship to land somewhere. I mean, granted, you know, that it's a whole other issue, but like, obviously there, there is the, possibility or option of making computer-generated works unauthored. But there's this there's this anxiety that you can see in the Urantia cases of like authorship has to land somewhere. It has to, you know. So we have to, we, we simply have to categorize in a particular way that allows these rights to emerge. Um, and sometimes that's going to be, you know, contrary to the actual stories that the authors or the producers of the text in various ways have delivered. Um, Yeah. So it's, again, yeah, it's, it's that tension that I found so interesting in, in the Urantia story.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like in relation to the Urantia foundation, it seems like the sort of organization was deploying copyright primarily in order to sort of try to manage as you say, the kind of rollout strategy mm-hmm. for this new religious perspective. I, I really was interested in your discussion of um, of Christian science and Mary Baker Eddy as well, though, because it seemed like in her case, I mean, there was some of that taking place, but in a lot of ways it seemed more about enfor- enforcing orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Like she was using copyright to try to prevent like – any alterations or any, anyone else kind of taking any kind of control or editorial control over the development of the religion is, is that like an accurate take on, on what was going on? Do you think? Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Um, I, I I think so. Um, and yeah, so the Christian science, the instance is, um, First off, it's different at the level of kind of the historical material I worked with, because there was an early case where Mary Baker Eddy sued, um, uh, sued someone for uh, copying considerable portions of one of her early texts. Um, but the, the actual court the records for that are relatively slim. So that particular chapter was really built on looking at how Mary Baker Eddy was talking about copyright in her letters to the publishing committees, to her followers, um, and how she was kind of managing, um, the assignment of her rights, how she was talking to the library of Congress in terms of, uh, uh, ensuring copyright for her editions. So, so that chapter was already kind of working with, with copyright at a different level, not as it was applied in the courtroom, but as it was kind of evoked and, you know, manipulated, um, not necessarily behind the scenes, but as a kind of deeper uh, publishing strategy. Mm-hmm.
0: And so- When it seemed like she, sorry, I was gonna say, it seemed like she had a complicated relationship with the publishing world as a whole. Yeah, like yeah. in particular, you talk about her relationship with Mark Twain, yeah. who is both kind of her antagonist, but in some ways also her ally in terms of thinking about copyright and authorship.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so- um. That's right. So, you know, because one of the things is that she, she built her authority, um, you know, as a female religious leader without a built-in structure of authority from, you know, the uh, really hierarchy of a, another de- denomination. She built that authority through her text, through the production of this, this work, science and health with key to the scriptures. So to her, You know that text was always a kind of living proxy for her own personal authority, Um, and that meant that that text, as it circulated out in the world, this is clearly her. You know, her approach resonates with with European moral rights traditions. Right? That that text was her child. That text was a part of her, and its circulation in the world had to be protected. Its integrity had to be maintained, and it had to be distinguished from the whole field of other metaphysical practices, traditions, religions that were kind of emerging at the time, particularly spiritualism, right? Mary Baker Eddy really had to distinguish her practices from uh, turn-of-the-century spiritualist practices. So her copyright strategy was always one of um, ensuring the integrity of her work as it circulated in a very complex publishing marketplace. And as you mentioned, that has... uh, kind of surprising resonances with Mark Twain, who was, was, you know, he wrote a book of lambasting Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science. He, he there, there are various reasons for it, but they were, they were very public enemies. Um, and yet behind the scenes, they shared the same legal counsel, uh, Samuel Elder, who wrote about the 1909 copyright reforms, was an advocate for copyright reforms. Um, And behind the scenes, Eddie's arguments for ensuring the life and uh, integrity of her work paralleled a lot of what Mark Twain was saying about ensuring the life and integrity of his works to protect an income stream for his children and his children's children. So um, there's this really interesting resonance uh, uh, between their arguments, Mary Baker Eddy in a theological register and Twain in a kind of literary, you know, a literary register but they were saying similar things and they were advocating for the same reforms in copyright law namely of course mainly about duration you know extending the duration of the text but also easing uh, formalities of registration um, and uh, 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 issues like that so uh, I found her case really interesting for for a number of reasons but that's that was one of them for sure
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if, if, if I may, I mean, it seems to me that like when you talk about the Urantia foundation, it was like, they wanted to make, they wanted to use copyright to sort of maintain a certain degree of privacy with respect to the text while denying authorship. Whereas with Mary Baker Eddy, she wanted to maintain authorship in order to better publicize the text and the religion. Um, and then it seems like I, – I can't help but think of your discussion of Scientology as being like another version where it's like there they want to maintain privacy in order to maximize distribution somehow. Mm. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, 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 um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how you're, you're putting the chapters in conversation with one another. You know, they, they are um, different flavors of – you know the different versions of of issues that arise with this conflict of religion and copyright that um that I think you're 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 pointing to in really interesting ways so um yeah <clears throat> yeah so so Scient- the church of scientology had has has when i started looking at it first of all i put it off because it was the elephant in the room always when you're dealing with this mm-hmm. issue um, and in some ways, I, I initially thought that it would replicate some of the issues uh, with Mary Baker Eddy, namely that it was about the protection of L. Ron Hubbard as kind of sacred author um, and the centrality of the, the the text, which is true, but, um, but their practices were much more explicitly – it is kind of like a hybrid of, of – Christian Science and Urantia, because they wanted to secure the relationship between author and work, um, L. Ron Hubbard and a variety of of texts that he produced, but mainly, of course, Dianetics and um, the Bridge to Total Freedom uh, sequence. Um, But they wanted to secure that relationship um, and kind of place clear boundaries around it so only proper initiates would get access to it right so it's it's the esoteric production of its market value um mm. and what this meant was that their legal arguments for protecting it um were not just about Elron Hubbard you know about legit the legitimacy of its authorship, but also about um the damage that can be done for works to circulate indiscriminately in this new space, which was the internet right so I've looked at the cases against internet service providers um which Scientology was, the Church of Scientology was pursuing uh, before safe harbor provisions were established. So they were really, the Church of Scientology was really recognizing that the internet was this new place um, that uh, produced copies and circulated works in ways that really challenged uh, the capacity of copyright to control the text in particular ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, and how successful do you think Scientology was as sort of mobilizing copyright doctrine to achieve its goals? Because, Mm. I mean, again, sort of the conventional wisdom of of copyright is that the whole purpose is to secure the marketplace for the sort of general commercial distribution of a work. And that's kind of the exact opposite of what Scientology wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well,
1: so... Um, I mean, one of the things is simply that Scientology did something that is recognized legally, but just not really often grappled with, which is that copyright is also the right not to publish, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. so, so for them, if for the Church of Scientology that was invested in uh, an esoteric system. He uh, could call it a business model in which, like the Urantians, you would only get access to certain materials within structured relationships between, you know, teacher and student. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one had to have very careful control over what not to publish in order to circulate it in particular ways. So so to a certain extent, their legal argument, um, you know, could be thought of as as not particularly uh, unusual. So their focus on the right not to publish, their focus on kind of establishing control, uh, allowed them to draw attention to the internet as a space where copies proliferated, sometimes again without human agents involved, right, um, or without direct oversight. Uh, they were able to recognize that very early on. And so in certain ways, I'd say. I guess, yeah, in certain ways, I'd say the Scientologist's argument, as unusual as it seems, is actually a, a slightly more conventional one and one that really, um, uh, set the framework for and pointed toward the revisions that happened in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, uh, which, yeah.
0: yeah. 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 I mean, it seems like this kind of perennial tension between copyright and privacy in the sense Mm. that copyright law kind of, it says that you have the right of first publication, but, you know, built right into it is the idea that, you know, you're eventually going to publish it and you're just picking the right moment in which to do it. And yet, you know, there are always these contexts in which people want to use that right to not publish at all. Mm -hmm. Right. And in some kind of deep way, that seems, you know, very much in tension with sort of like the assumptions of copyright, and it's like copyright doctrine doesn't know what to do with mm. the desire not to publish in 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 the first place, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. also I means it's it, it struck me as well. And this was something that that really came across to me in in the book is that you know you you profile these religions that are aggressively pursuing kind of copyright in different ways for different purposes, but in order to achieve theological goals. Um, Mm -hmm. But it seems like that's not necessarily the case for all new religions or all religious sects. And I'm Mm. wondering if you think that there are differences or what kinds of differences might encourage particular religious organizations to look to copyright to achieve goals as opposed to ones that don't see copyright as being a valuable tool for themselves. Mm,
1: mm. Yeah. Um, so my, um, yeah, that, that, that's a great question. My, my initial thought is that um, if new religious movements depend on if there are new religious movements that have produced a sacred or prophetic text and rely upon it as a kind of anchor for building a social, a a kind of community of readers, um, copyright, uh, very early on becomes, uh, part of their, uh, enters their radar in one way or the other. And whether or not they deploy it, they kind of have to choose, um, you know, choose their relationship, their legal relationship to the text ahead of time, um, mm. because it's going to come up if something is successful. That there are going to be offshoots, there are going to be schisms, there are going to be the variety of different kind of social complications that come from the the emergence of a new religious group. There's going to be the difference between the text and the charismatic leader um, as it goes forward. So, in in some ways, I see it as. Um, <clears throat> Copyright is all, as, as kind of inevitably featuring with groups that fit these particular conditions, usually, yeah, newer groups uh, dedicated to a particular text. Um, but that being said, I think that there are lots of different flavors of this. Um, so, I mean, I think about future directions for this research. And I think there are really interesting things to be said about the emergence of copyright licensing in hymnal music for worship ceremonies. So Christian Copyright Licensing Institute, you know, manages uh, these things. And, you know, there aren't explicit theological dimensions to that, the emergence of that system. But I think it inevitably gets caught up in theological questions when you're thinking about dimensions of ownership and control over a worship ceremony and levels of performance. Um I've been looking at sermon stealing, for instance, which varies across mm-hmm. denominations, but are, are pulpit plagiarism. But there there are questions about, you know, as sermons get fixed in particular mediums of ex, media of expression, as, you know, as the copyright says, um, how do those, what kind of ownership claims can be made over those sermons? How do they circulate? What norms apply uh, in the circulation of those materials? So that is the introduction of issues kind of related to copyright um, uh, that that go beyond new religious movements that would incorporate you know a lot of different traditions and this is still talking you know operating within the frame of the united states you know in the last two centuries um, and it's only my lack of imagination to think about how it applies to you know uh, other traditions and other areas of the world um, but yeah, you know whether or not it's copyright, it's it's these kind of fundamental questions of proprietary and control that motivate this turn, and that I think um, show up in different ways across a lot of different religious practices.
0: Yeah. So, so like as you know, and as you discuss in in your book, um, copyright doctrine, technology. I mean, none of these are static, sort of. Institutions either, and especially in recent years, uh, we've seen obviously, you know, technology becoming. Like more and it makes it easier and easier to distribute things and harder and harder to control them. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to copyright doctrine, courts have become increasingly sort of attentive to and sympathetic to fair use claims in an assortment of different flavors. And you sort of allude to this in your book that sort of discussion of fair use in a religious context has not been as robust as it has been in other more market oriented or more art related or more politics related context. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about where that might go in the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great, that's a, a great question. Yeah. Um, so one of my cases, which is worldwide church of God, which um, is actually one of the more written about cases in the scholarship did, you know, did it, did Uh, mobilize fair use defenses for the religious distribution of materials. Um, But yeah, it's really interesting how, how, you know, evangelical traditions or traditions in which this wide circulation of materials um, hasn't fostered or produced something like the equivalent of an open source or fair use discourse within the religious sphere. Um, in fact, you know, people that I know that have, that have spoken to, uh, you know, uh, uh, different kind of like, you know, Christian mu- musicians and, um, uh, people within the kind of popular Christian, uh, music scene, um, have very little patience for things like Creative Commons license to distribute their material. They have a very strong kind of labor oriented and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so I might not be doing justice to other people's work. But um, but it, to me, it seems like there's a very strong uh, kind of Lockean sweat of the brow claim mm. being made, like, you know, whether or not divine inspiration features in it, there's this labor involved, it's still my product, you know. Um, so I was interested in, I, I've always been interested in looking at spaces where there is something like a fair use claim for the distribution of religious media or, you know, open source religion, right? What, what does that look, what would that look like? Um, and I guess the yeah, I guess I continue to look for it or look for different variants of it, whether that's in the way that sermons circulated or, um, whether that's in, you know, uh, New movements and the emergent church, for instance, or you know different practices like that. Um, I, I'm still not entirely sure, but it's something that I I look out for, and I'm, I'd be interested in seeing that emerge. Um, whether or not it does, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I wonder. Like in in closing, I I, I wonder. Like looking forward, do you anticipate like more of this kind of convergence between? Kind of copyright doctrine and religious conceptions of the relationship to mm. works of authorship that are generated, like the kind of more Lockean proprietarian model you were just describing, mm. or do you see room still for the kind of create? <laughs> I guess for better a word for you know for want of a better term, like creative deployment mm-hmm. of copyright for non kind of like orthodox copyright purposes that you describe in your book. In other words, is this a phenomenon that the law is starting to channel in its own direction or is there still room for religion to sort of do its own thing?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, so, um, so one of the things I would say, I, now I, I apologize if this doesn't quite answer your question, but um, <laughs> one of the reasons I found these religious groups to be so productive in their uh, maneuvering within the sphere of copyright law was precisely because copyright law didn't recognize their religious claims. So it's the Urantia thing, right? They could maneuver mm. simply because there was no one-to-one correspondence between the religious claims and the and the copyright uh, doctrine they wanted to deploy. And copyright, because of the religious, uh, 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 because of the kind of prohibition against, you know, the first, uh, the establishment clause prohibition against favoring one or the other religious claim, copyright law had to be silent about these theological claims, which meant its silence, which meant that you could maneuver within it even more. Uh, its Mm. silence was specifically what allowed religious organizations to look at all these different doctrinal tools and find resonances in different ways. So what I would say is um, uh, even if copyright law were to develop something like sui generis around uh, religion, it'd probably be unconstitutional, but it would also freeze the level of innovation that was going on in these spaces. Um, Mm. That's, yeah, that's one of the things. And, and kind of going forward, um, Um, yeah, going forward, I, I, I don't see the law. This was one of the things that I struggled with in terms of what the relevance of this work was, because, you know, none of these cases, um, these were, these were odd cases, right they were they were not cases that developed long standing precedents, although now with computer generated works that's you know we we might something different might emerge but um so I think what was interesting is that uh the the, the resonances for these cases also required them to be marginal right for them not to mm-hmm. have this kind of long standing or or long term effect on copyright law their marginality and their their lack of kind of uh, you know, their their uh, that marginality was specifically what allowed them to test copyright law in particular ways. Um, mm. And so, going forward, it, whether or not it's religious organizations that do it, it's what I'm personally interested in as a researcher is finding these these uh, often neglected cases, non landmark cases, that are interesting specifically because they pose particular challenges. Um, that couldn't be incorporated within future doctrine, um, that couldn't be incorporated within kind of uh, precedent, Um, and why they couldn't be, what incommensurable tensions were there that these cases bring to light um, that allow us to understand kind of the foundations of these doctrines in different ways. So um, yeah, so my research interest actually is, is, is motivated by the fact that these cases don't have a long life or have a significant effect on the long. Yeah. That's a kind of, may seem weird and uh, yeah, contradictory, but that's, that's kind of my approach.
0: Uh, I think it's what makes the book so fascinating. And I really hope listeners will check it out because you did a great job with it. And um, I'm really glad that somebody finally really tackled that, as you say, really kind of, peculiar marginal set of 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 (laughs) non-precedents in a programmatic way because i think it really helped me understand what was going on in a way that i hadn't previously thank you thank you
2: Well, um, I was compelled, sometimes against my will, as a small child, to go to Sunday school every Sunday. And then from the time I was about six years old, I was compelled to stay for church. So I've heard a lot of preaching. Then after I became grown, I taught men's Bible class here in the First Presbyterian Church uh, for many years. I've um, sort of brought up on uh, the teachings of the King James Version of the Bible, which, as I said before, I think is the most beautiful work of literature ever written on account of the the sublime language in which it's expressed. I think that uh, anybody studies it and observes life, they see it's a good road map to travel by through this world. I was never... Uh, fundamentalist in the sense that it never made a great difference to me how we got here, whether the world was created in six days or whether it came through the process of uh, evolution. It was sort of important what we we're going to do while we we're here and where we were going, but particularly what we we're going to do here. And I always got a lot of consolation out of the fact that uh, you don't have to explain everything. you can't explain some things. Tennyson always gave me a lot of consolation in that respect. He said that. It's more faith, believe me, in honest doubt than in half the creeds. I just think people are marvelous beings, really. And they come here in this world with great uh, aspirations and great uh, abilities. And you know so many fine people, and most of them is are people who have some uh, faith in matters of religion. Therefore, as I said in talking about immortality, that... Uh, I have a feeling that uh, somewhere, sometime, we're going to have an opportunity, free from the limitations that we now suffer, to try to do what tasks we may have to do. And uh, it gives me a great deal of consolation. Of course, I think all of us love the, the 23rd Psalm. And to my mind, uh, the, the most complete prayer I ever uttered is the Lord's Prayer, because it's got about everything in there that we need. There's just so much of this uh, beautiful land.